0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and e-books online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Alright, welcome everyone. This week we are getting an in-depth look at kombucha and the world of fermented drinks. I spoke with Andrea Potter, the author of the book DIY Kombucha, Sparkling Homebrews Made Easy. Now the recent explosion in popularity of this historic beverage comes at a critical time when more and more people are taking back their food making processes and starting to see whole nutritious food as a preventative measure for all kinds of illnesses. In this interview, Andrea talks about the history, health benefits, and fermentation process of kombucha, and more importantly, how you can easily make it at home for yourself. We also talk quite a bit about other types of naturally fermented drinks and recipes for delicious flavors. This is a great episode for those of you looking for new uses of fruits, herbs, and flavorings that you grow in your gardens, and will hopefully inspire you to get started making your own. So now I'll turn things over to Andrea. Hey Andrea, thank you so much for making time to be on the podcast today. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me, Oliver.
0: Hey, it's my pleasure. Now, we've got a whole lot of things to cover, so why don't we just get to the questions, because I'm really keen to learn more about fermented beverages.
1: Okay, yeah, I'm into it.
0: Fantastic. All right. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got started in trying out different types of ferments and how you got to master your own kombucha recipes?
1: Huh. Okay. So <laughs> you know how, um, like when you're ready to learn a lesson, it seems like it's all over the place. Yes. I don't know if, if you have like, yeah, <laughs> it's like, it seems like it was nowhere and then all of a sudden it was everywhere. So, um, I guess I got into fermentation in general, not just fermented beverages through a friend who kind of acted as a bit of a mentor. Um, we were both working in kind of a hippie vegan cafe type of place. This is about 10 years ago. And um, she was a sourdough baker. And she was also going to nutrition school. So she would like come to work from school and tell me about all this cool stuff about um, what she was learning about the nutrition of fermentation and then um, her and I started to get into some projects. I guess we picked up a copy of Sandor Kat's first, well, not his first book, but his book, um, Wild Fermentation.
0: Oh, that's a great and it kind one.
1: of acted as our handbook. Yeah. that acted as our handbook. So we chose a few projects, but, um, this person also got me into kombucha. She gave me my first kombucha mother. Um, after, after I declined to taste it a number of times, um, she kept telling me about all the health, Benefits, and I was like, oh, "Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Okay, lovely." And then inside, I was like, "That sounds awful. It sounds like it has so many benefits that it would taste vile." <laughs> That's what I was really thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I went to her house, and she just poured me something fizzy and gave it to me. I guess I assumed it was an alcoholic drink, and I drank it like enthusiastically. Drank it. I assumed it was cider, actually, because sometimes green kombucha, like green tea kombucha, can have that kind of appley flavor, and I was like, oh, I'll have some more. And then she told me that's the stuff I'm talking about. So it totally blew me away. Um, and I had to learn more about it. I think I went home with my first mother that day.
0: Marvelous. Now, walk me a little bit through the history of kombucha, this recently popular beverage in the West. But it it um, while it only reached its notoriety in maybe the last five or ten years, this is actually quite an ancient technique for preserving beverages and boosting the health benefits.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. So like everything, like when we stumble upon it, we feel like, oh, that's brand new. Um, Of course, it is totally not brand new. Um, So I have taken to uh, like enthusiastically brewing at home and then also sharing my skills through doing workshops. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, sometimes even halfway into a workshop, someone will just look a little bit perplexed and they'll be like, but what is it? Like, (laughs) What is it? And um, I guess knowing a little bit about the history helps us understand, um, you know, its benefits because we can look at like historical evidence of benefits and use and things like that, like get some wisdom from people who have done it before. So um, from from what I understand, it's a couple of thousand years old. And what's really neat is that everyone gets it from someone who had it before. So that means that it forms a pellicule, a SCOBY, and and they have just given it to friends. So this is kind of a pretty um, cool tradition where people, you know, passed it on for thousands of years. Um, And so we think that it started in China and some people think maybe like Manchuria or Russia area. Um, but like many things that started in that area, the population or sorry, the popularity just like exploded, and so it traveled around Europe and was noted as a healing beverage there. Um, one story is that the the word kombucha comes from a doctor Kombu who was Korean and he came and um, started treating people in Japan with a, like the nobility in Japan with his magical beverage of kombucha. So they called it the tea of Dr. Kombu. So kombucha. Nice. Um, yeah. So that's one story about the name, but it's kind of, it's really shrouded in mystery and uh, mysticism. And uh, I think sometimes kombu- kombucha brewers, like love that too. So, yeah, of course. <laughs> we're not totally sure because there are there are hundreds of names for it. Um, every culture that's been touched by kombucha uh, has a different name for it. So I'm not sure why kombucha is the one that we use here. Um, one story that I thought was kind of neat, um, I was brewing it and I was learning a lot about its anti-inflammatory properties. So then when I was inspired to go to nutrition school, I was excited about it, brewing it, and I brought some for... Um, kind of an honorary father, father and grandfather-in-law guy, um, and he is originally from Germany. So um, he's into doing stuff himself, and he always made his own homemade wines and he made sauerkraut. He was really inspirational for me about sauerkraut, and I brought him over some kombucha and like, hey, this will really help your joints. And he took one sniff of it and he's like, oh, I know this stuff. We used to drink it um, back in Germany. And I kind of doubted that. I don't know. Like I, again, just being uh, naive. <laughs> but in, I was like, well, I don't know about that, Opa. I think you might be, uh, you might be wrong about that. And then he described it, and he he told me the German name for the scoby or for the drink. My German's horrible. I'm gonna try. He called it Heldenpilz, uh, which I guess means hero mushroom. And Interesting. Uh, he told me exactly. He told me exactly how his mom brewed it. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, you totally drank this before before World War II. Um, so then when I asked him, like, why did you stop drinking it? And he said, well, I guess, like, after the war, he came to Canada pretty soon after the war. And he said also there was a, a shortage of tea and sugar. And, of course, it fell out of favor.
0: Yeah, so that makes sense.
1: I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's been around for a really long time. Um, and, you know, it was about 10 years ago when – I first tried it and it wasn't on the store shelves yet. I still, it still seemed a little mysterious. I think my, my stepdad actually had a little bout in the nineties of trying to brew it at home, but he was kind of doing it wrong and it tasted really awful. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't catch on to it then. Um, But then many years later when I learned how to do it nicely, like make some really lovely flavors and something that you'd actually want to drink. I, I got onto it, but then uh industry figured out how to brew it and get it onto store shelves so now there's this huge explosion where you know you see it even in in big box stores and stuff
0: It's true yeah mm-hmm. I've really noticed the growth in popularity of this and even some media coverage uh just in the last few years I mean like like you said it's probably about 8 to 10 years ago that I heard about it for the first time but it was kind of among my alternative friends who like to make their own stuff, brew their own beer and wine, and we're experimenting with these things, but it's really caught on since then.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So let's explore a little bit about the process of making kombucha. Sure. What ingredients and what equipment do you need to get started?
1: Right. um, So what I like about this, and like a lot of other fermentation projects, but this one in particular, you don't need fancy equipment at all. Um, A four-liter Last jar is best. Um, you could use smaller jars and do a half batch or whatever. Um, you want something with a wide mouth at the top, not something that comes in like a bottle. You want something because the pellicle or the scoby actually will grow to the size of the opening of the mouth. So you don't want to get it stuck in something.
0: <laughs> um, sure.
1: So you need this. You need a, a tightly woven cloth just to keep any sort of bugs out um, to put on the top because you want it to breathe a little bit. And basic sanitation equipment. So you don't need to sterilize things like you do with beer and wine. You just need like soapy water. And optionally you could put it in a bottle. You're going to get nice fizzy stuff like you would buy at the store. If you do the second step, like secondary fermentation and you bottle it. Uh, that's pretty much it. Other than that, just like you're brewing a big pot of tea. Um, kombucha is tea, sugar, water in Uh, a pretty specific ratio the water and sugar is always uh, one cup to four liters or one gallon and uh, then the amount of tea that you add is it depends on who you talk to I use about uh, four to eight tea bags per per gallon and then you just you basically just brew a big pot of tea and let it cool pour it into your glass jar and then you add a scoby um, and a little bit of the liquid from the last batch. And you just let it sit there. You don't stir it. You don't skim it. It's very low maintenance. Um, it hangs out for about a week. And you can see the new scoby. You should be able to see the new scoby uh, starting to form on the top. So it actually will like replicate itself after every few batches.
0: Now, I would imagine you'd have to really let the tea cool down before you add the scoby, lest you risk killing it. What temperature does it right. have to be at before you can add the bacteria?
1: Um, like no hotter than body temperature. Usually I just do room temperature. Gotcha. Um, so just like making bread, like if you ever were to add uh, milk or water that's too hot for it, then your, your yeast would die. So right. yeah, anything that's body, body or room temperature is fine.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Now I've known a lot of different people who've tried to make kombucha and have had whole batches go bad or turn out poorly. Now it seems like right. you just mentioned a really simple process, but what are some of your tips and tricks that you recommend to avoid some of the slip ups, the problems, or maybe even just troubleshoot some batches that have gone wrong?
1: Yeah, I've <laughs> I've actually had people come to workshops with their scobies and uh, kind of show it to me, like, um, "Hey, scoby doctor, what do I <laughs> what do I do? How come <laughs> it's not growing, or why does it look?" Um, so one indication of the health of your kombucha so whether it is growing uh well is whether your scoby looks i guess like quote unquote normal but there's lots of different variations of normal so i think a lot of people who feel like they've done it wrong or who come to me and say like i killed my i killed my mother because another name for scoby is mother (laughs) i killed my mother what did i do um a lot of times They actually didn't kill the mother. It just grew differently than they thought it would. Ah, So usually it's a matter of like, is it really, is something really wrong here? Um, It's nice to have a visual reference of uh, healthy scobies. Uh, There are, there's a couple of sites out there that have them. And um, so looking up healthy kombucha scoby can be helpful because then, you know, like sometimes they're very thin. Sometimes they're um, quite dark in color if you brew with a black tea um sure. people will people will be very concerned about uh spots on it and like rightfully so you should inspect it for spots because you certainly don't want mold that's the big bad thing that people are mostly worried about nine times out of ten it's not mold it's a little tea leaf that escaped your strainer you ah, know? There you go. so you have to just visually inspect it um or if it it looks like a white mold potentially it's bubbles you know carbon dioxide happens when fermentation happens so sometimes there's little clusters of bubbles that happen at the top so I usually just ask people to make sure that it's not one of those two things and if it definitely is mold or it probably is mold then um, something went wrong and you have to throw it out but and it's pretty rare that that will happen.
0: Now can you divide up the SCOBY in order to make multiple batches?
1: Yeah, for sure, um, and that's how that's how it's gotten around the world so easily. So it does grow a new one. Uh, sometimes they grow distinct from each other, so you'll see uh, one form on the top, and then it will be um, detached from the one that it grew from. Other times, they'll grow kind of smooshed together, and they'll get thicker and thicker. So both are normal, and uh, if they grow de- if they're detached, you could just take one, put it in a new batch. If they're attached, you can actually cut them. Some people, some people feel like emotionally attached to their kombucha scobies and they don't want to cut them, but um, you can cut it. It's fine. It, the yeast will double every hour that it's fed. So there's no need for you to uh, worry about if it looks perfectly round or whatever.
0: Oh, that's good. So could you explain <laughs> a little bit about how this fermentation process works? Do you have some recommendations about how to facilitate the process and how the scoby is actually turning the sugars into that final product that tastes often closer to vinegar and even comes out carbonated. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So I I had to learn... I found myself learning about food science when I got into this. And uh, science didn't used to interest me in school, but then when I realized it applied to stuff that was gurgling away on my countertop, I'm like, oh, you know what? I need to learn about the life of yeast and I need to learn about bacteria. Um, I was like, simultaneously, while I learned kombucha, I was becoming inspired about gut microbes um, and health. And so I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to learn how to feed these good bacteria so they can essentially feed me. Um, So the sugar in kombucha is a big question. It needs sugar. It has to have calories. Um, just pure cane sugar is the best food for it. Some people use uh, unrefined organic cane sugar. I use refined organic cane sugar. As long as it has um, calories that are easily accessible, then it's fine. So it will not eat xylitol or stevia or anything like that.
0: Yeah, it makes sense.
1: Lots of people do this as a health practice and they totally don't have sugar in their kitchens, which is fine. But the only good reason to have you know, sugar in your kitchen is is about brewing beverages like kombucha or whatever. Yeah, to here.
0: facilitate the fermentation of beneficial bacteria.
1: Yeah, so it's essentially like eating the sugar, so you don't have to. Um, so the the yeast and bacteria, there uh, scoby means symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. So, um, unlike an apple cider vinegar mother, like you have you seen apple cider vinegar? It's kind of murky, right? Yeah, of course. Like like that, the brown bits that float around in it. So that's part of the vinegar mother. Um, and the kombucha mother is related to that vinegar mother. Um, but the difference is it's not just a bacterial um, kind of pellicule. It's uh, bacterial plus yeast. And that's why we get the nice fizz that we're looking for in kombucha. So it's part kind of vinegar fermentation and part uh, yeast and alcohol fermentation. Um, and... So it's really, it's really interesting because the first phase is uh, more active in the yeast kind of department. So um, the first few days of brewing is actually the highest alcohol content. A lot of people think it gets more alcoholic the longer it sits, but actually the opposite is true. So the first four days or so that it's sitting at room temperature, you'll get a lot more, um, a lot of the yeast activity bringing some carbonation, bringing some alcohol. Um, and then what's neat is it has kind of an alcohol regulation system in it where the bacteria then come in and they eat the alcohol and their byproduct is different types of organic acids. Um, and so then we get something that starts to become more and more sour. So people tend to like their kombucha at different amounts of sour and different amounts of fizzy. And when you get, um, kind of acquainted with like the nuances of brewing, then you can start to control those things for yourself.
0: Fantastic. Now, I know you mentioned earlier about all of the myriad health benefits of fermented beverages, especially kombucha. Could you go over some of those mm-hmm. and how you might use it as a medicine or a tonic?
1: Sure. Yeah, I think there are, I, I've i noticed that just as it's becoming commercially really popular, there are new huge claims to its health benefits Um, and I think some of them are warranted and some of them were misguided. Um, Also because it's now on the store shelves we're actually finding better funded studies for it. Um, A lot of the information that we had about kombucha before those studies were done was just you know uh, folk wisdom and so uh, some of that stuff has proven, proven to be true and some of it has not. So, um, it's, it's kind of an exciting time to be in fermented beverages because we know a lot more about like what's going on in there. Um, yeah. So we know that the composition of different scobies from around the world are a little different. So if you're brewing in um, Europe, the scobies that are being passed around there um, have a slightly different composition than the ones that are passed around here. Um, so it's not, it, it, it would be very difficult to say, oh, it has absolutely these bacteria in these numbers, you know? Uh, it varies batch to batch and place to place. But we know, um, I guess probiotic is the biggest word, like the biggest reason that people might start drinking kombucha. A lot of people come to my classes saying, I heard it's probiotic. Um, there's a bit of a controversy about that, actually. So uh, in nutrition, like, the study of probiotics is still relatively new. It's only like 50 years old or something. And the more that we're discovering about our own microbiome and about the microbiome of the planet, um, we are discovering new types of probiotics. So there's new types of bacteria that are being shown to be beneficial to humans when we consume them. Right. And then they get, you get, they get named and classified as probiotics. So people were looking at the composition of scobies and of kombucha and noticed that actually most scobies that are being passed around don't have probiotic bacteria in them wow there was a big sigh of like disappointment i think in the kombucha brewing community when when they heard that it's it's not technically probiotic for the most part there are a few scobies that are passed around uh, who have lactobacillus which is uh really common probiotic, like it's easy to find in um, like yogurt and sauerkraut and kimchi and foods like that. And so some of them are, uh, but some aren't, and you would have to just get yours tested at the lab to know. So people felt really bummed out about that because they had had really felt real benefits um, and they thought it was due to probiotics. So like one thought I have about that is that there are many bacteria that still have not been identified. Um, that might become, might be classified as probiotic as we learn more about them. So potentially it will get reclassified and then people will be like, oh, it is probiotic after all. <laughs> um, that's a possibility, but it's also a possibility that it's because of other um, components in kombucha that makes people feel great when they drink it. Um, One of them is, you know, when you shake a bottle of kombucha or, or, well, you shouldn't really shake it because it might gush. But um, if you tip it over, it has kind of a murkiness to it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's not very Um, clear.
1: Yeah, so that sediment um, is indicative that there's uh, some spent yeast at the bottom. And that spent yeast is really, really high in B vitamins. So that process of fermentation uh, is super beneficial because like sugar and tea are you know, very weak in B vitamins. Uh and it's cool because it just letting them sit there with the SCOBY um actually produces B vitamins in the process. So when some people report feeling good almost immediately upon drinking their kombucha, um, it could be because of uh the B vitamins in it. Um I actually got like a pretty red face the first time that I that I had some and I thought it was because of alcohol because I get that flush with alcohol. And um, it was probably actually due to niacin, which is one of the B vitamins that's in kombucha. Oh, wow. So that's a B vitamin that will flush your face red. Um, if you're deficient in it, it will flush your face red and then just go away. So it causes kind of these like mini hot flashes. Um, so B vitamins is is one reason. And then it's also really high in enzymes. And so it, it totally helps people's digestion. And so a lot of people with digestive issues um, really like lean on their kombucha as a, Um, digestive tonic.
0: Excellent. That gives me so many different ideas of how to use it. What sort of ailments do you personally tend to use fermented beverages and kombucha for?
1: Um, You know, I I use it as more of a uh, health practice on the day-to-day. I don't really think of it um, in my medicine cabinet. I think of it more in my, like, food pantry but it kind of straddles that line so it's
0: kind of like a maintenance thing
1: it's a maintenance thing and so uh, i guess like tonic is a good word for it because it's like a, a strengthening beverage right um and so it it strengthens digestion on the day-to-day um it can eventually help to um reduce body inflammation um especially if you're drinking it quite sour like without residual sh- uh sugar or with very little residual sugar uh, yeah that makes- so um, i think of it as I think of it as like a a maintenance thing, like, like eating your vegetables, you know? Um, So while like broccoli has a lot of benefits, I wouldn't necessarily eat it specifically to reduce breast cancer. I'm eating it because that's what's for dinner, you know? (laughs) Um, So kombucha, same thing. I drink it because it's delicious. It's a super good alternative to pop or juice or alcohol. Um, So I like to have it around for those reasons. And all of the health benefits are just, for me, they're totally a bonus
0: absolutely like give me an idea of the sugar content of your average kombucha i'm sure it probably varies fairly widely depending on how you make it and how long you let it ferment but i know a lot of people are concerned about consuming too much especially processed sugar though you did recommend cane sugar um yeah what's the best way of cutting down on on the sugar content
1: yeah um it can have as little as, I'm doing this off the top of my head, so I'll have to check it. But I think it's about seven grams per um, glass, per like eight ounce glass, um, which is about the same as carrot juice. So uh, it never has no sugar. There are some sugars which are not consumed, um, but it can be quite low sugar. If you ferment it to the point of vinegar, it's it's low sugar, like very low. Um, but most people like it with a bit more sweetness to it, especially if you put, do secondary fermentation, meaning you put a little extra sugar or fruit in the bottle to make it fizzier. So, uh, the best practice, if you're going super, super low sugar is to ferment it for 21 days. Um, you're going to have the lowest amount of sugar Good in to that know. case. Just yeah. Fermenting it open in a jar for 21 days, and then you can bottle it. And, um, it's, it's very, very, Super sour. (laughs) Some people can tolerate it. Some people take very small amounts of it, like they would um, a vinegar. So that's how you get the lowest sugar. Um, I like to do it somewhere between, I usually brew for about 10 days. So I've got something moderate sugar.
0: Nice. Now I know there's a ton of different recipes that you can use to get different flavors and such. What are your Mm -hmm. personal favorite recipes and what are the different flavor profiles that you recommend with different ingredients?
1: Oh, yeah, so my background is actually as a chef. Um, I think I mentioned I was working in restaurants before, so i I'm kind of a nerd for pairing with um like pairing different flavors together in my beverages. so I like to do a batch of pretty plain kombucha, so that means I'm um, either green or black tea and um I, I actually recently learned that you can use non caffeinated different types of herbs as well, um, but most of my experience is with tea. So I'll do a batch of plain kombucha and then the fun flavors happen and secondary fermentation when you put it in the bottle. So um, I've got one, like I've got one in my book that is mango lassi. And so it's like some crushed cardamom pods and some mango puree. And you just put that in the bottom of the bottle and then fill it up with your green or black tea kombucha. And then you let that sit for a few days and the the sugars in the mango are consumed and the flavor of the cardamom infuses. Um, and then you just strain it out. Oh,
0: that sounds amazing.
1: It's really, really yummy. Um, and depending on what seasonal, I like to use the fruit uh, that's around as well. So we've got a lot of blackberries out here and um, like blackberry with basil is a really lovely combination. Wow. Um, we do, I like raspberry and mint. And so, yeah, anything that you're like, that you're inspired by in terms of like mixology or food pairings, you can definitely try putting that in the bottle.
0: Wow, I like the way you think, Andre. I'm definitely going to have to take some of those recipes and try them out the next time we make our own batches here. But seeing as I just took a swig of our own ginger fermented beverage here, why don't we talk a little bit about some of the other ways that we can ferment drinks and the different types of probiotics and ingredients that we can use to do that.
1: Sure, sure. So, for different, uh, what types of uh, cultures were you using to ferment that ginger thing that you just drank?
0: Well, so the specific one that we've been doing is uh, a ginger mm-hmm. bug. So, we've been fermenting I'll ginger, ginger with, with the wild yeast that are on the skin. And we just keep it yeah. going, kind of feeding it almost like a sourdough starter by putting in what they call here yeah. uh, panella, which is just raw cane sugar in block form. And then we, we put yeah. some of that in, grate some new ginger into it. And keep the bug going, mm-hmm. and then whenever we're ready to make drinks, then we'll do a huge batch of tea. In this case, we did hibiscus tea, and added some yeah. um, some pina um, pineapple rinds. <laughs> Sorry, sometimes I get confused yeah. with the Spanish and the English words here. Um, so we added okay. pineapple <laughs> rinds and and the sugar, and yeah. then after all of that boiled and cooled again, then we added the ginger bug. And usually, within about two or three days, it's it's fizzy already. And we do a big batch that way.
1: Nice. Yeah, great. So it sounds like you have a really healthy ginger bug.
0: Yeah, it's been going really well. And we've tried a lot of different combinations, but this uh, hibiscus and pineapple one has been a real favorite.
1: I'm totally going to try that. Um, yeah, so ginger bug is uh, such a useful and easy to maintain culture. Like have you found that you don't even, you don't need to feed it very often. You don't need to make batches very often for it to, to thrive, right?
0: What I found is that the more often you feed it, kind of the more sweet it comes out. And if you let it to age without feeding it very often, it tends to become more vinegary and acidic, which I mean, you just sort of do to taste.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's much like a sourdough starter that way. So if people have other experience with fermentation in terms of baking bread and things like that, then they tend to have an idea about what we mean by feeding it. Um, if you're totally a beginner though, like I found that ginger beer out of a ginger bug was actually a pretty easy project because you don't need to buy, you don't need to like go find a SCOBY somewhere and start it. Um, you could just start with organic ginger, like you said, just grating ginger and adding sugar and then waiting till it bubbles. So it's, I love that as a beginner project for sure.
0: Yeah, it, I found it to be really low maintenance, like very approachable to anyone. I mean, I know Kabucha is as well but I've also heard of some others that are more involved processes. Could you talk about maybe some of mm-hmm. the other ways or other ingredients you could use to get good fermented beverages started?
1: Yeah. Um. So, I mean, fermented beverages are, they're vast. And so we've got like your beer and wine side. Um, but for my, my uh, experience, what I've been working on in the last few years is more of the less alcohol to no alcohol kind of ferments. Um, so... Yeah, the ginger beer and kombucha are super popular. Um, another one is water kefir. Um, have you seen water kefir grains before? I haven't, no. Okay, so this is this one's pretty neat. Um, the water kefir, they're called kefir grains. And so kefir or kefir um, is usually, when people say that, they think of dairy or that yogurt drink. Right. Um, and that is another fermented beverage, and it's actually unrelated to water kefir. Um, so the dairy one looks kind of like a uh, cauliflower a little bit, um, and, but it's gooey and um, soft and kind of all in one piece. And then the water kefir is uh, made for fermenting a beverage, kind of like sparkling lemonade. Like if you just did a plain water kefir, it would taste like sparkling lemonade. Um, the grains are translucent and kind of look like gravel. And rather than redu- uh, sorry, rather than like augmenting their size, And when they grow, they just reproduce in numbers. So you might like, yeah, so you might get a few teaspoons more growth um, just by having more kind of gravelly bits. So I got my first few tablespoons of water kefir a number of years ago. And it's a a very different uh, rhythm than what kombucha has. Um, It's not difficult to take care of per se, but it requires more frequent um, brewing to keep healthy so I've had uh I've had batches of grains and then had to give them up and then gotten some back and had to give them up just depending on what my schedule looks like but um right now I'm rich in, I'm rich in water if your grains someone just dropped a whole bunch off here and I'm taking care of them
0: oh nice so now what kind um, of profile flavor wise does that give
1: so Kombucha has more of a yeasty taste. Um, Water kefir grains also are a bacteria and yeast um, scoby. It's also called a scoby, even though it doesn't look like a kombucha one. Um, It doesn't taste as yeasty, though. So people find if they're turned off by the smell or like yeasty taste of kombucha, sometimes they prefer water kefir. Um, It's just very clean and sparkly. Um, You don't use tea in it. And so it's just sugar and water. And you could optionally, and I recommend you do put some other flavors in. So after you brew it with the plain sugar and water, you can put in whatever flavors that you would for kombucha. So you could put in your um, berries or uh, different types of juice or vegetable purees even. Like you could put carrot juice in there if you wanted to make a kind of veggie tonic one. So, yeah, and they become quite fizzy quite fast. And they brew much faster than kombucha. Um kombucha is usually like 7 to 10 days or more and water kefir is like 2 to 5 days.
0: Oh yeah, that's a quick turnaround.
1: Yeah, so the, if if that fits the rhythm of, you know, your kitchen life then that might be fine, but you do have to brew them um kind of sequentially like back to back. It doesn't really like being rested very often. Um, so if you're, you know, working shift work or not in the house or you're taking a 3-month holiday, you kind of have to like find a babysitter for it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. So before I let you go here, could I have you tell our listeners a little bit about how they can get in touch with you, uh, where they can find your book and any other resources you would recommend on getting started with your own fermented beverages?
1: Sure. Um, um, they can get in touch with me. Uh, my So my business name is Rooted Nutrition and I teach uh, healthy cooking classes out here on the West Coast of Canada Um. And so, including fermented beverage classes, lots of fermented foods classes, and then um, kind of a myriad of other healthy uh, cooking classes and workshops. So I'm at rootednutrition.ca, and they could email me at uh, rootednutrition@gmail.com. Um, so other resources, you know, what I when I first started doing this, resources were local, and we formed kind of a little band of fermentation nerds <laughs> that we called the culture club and we get together like once a month and do a little food swap. So like I recommend if you can find a workshop in your area, it's nice to talk to people there. It's nice to not feel alone in this and that um, you can just go learn from each other. So get hooked up with a local community if you have one um sometimes there are closet fermenters even in small communities where you wouldn't, wouldn't expect them um, but of course now there's online communities and that's really where a lot of people go to share information um, i found a couple of well-managed facebook groups is that a helpful resource
0: yeah definitely
1: um, okay so one of them is called wild fermentation uh, it's a facebook group and it's not um It's not managed by Sandra Katz, who is the author of the book called Wild Fermentation, but it is inspired by his work. Um, And the admins are really on top of things in terms of um, they know their science. If there's any sort of conversation on the wild fermentation sites or sorry, uh, forum about fermentation practices that could be unsafe or unwise, then they inform and let people know what's up. So it really kind of alleviates people's potential fears about brewing bacteria on purpose in their kitchens and stuff. Um, The people on there are super generous with sharing recipes and experience. And so I get a lot out of speaking to them. And they vary from like super beginner brewers to people who brew for a living um, and actually like have kombucha companies and stuff. So I like that one. Uh, Another one on Facebook, Kombucha Nation. And again, it's just thousands and thousands of kombucha brewers. And so really great for super quick stuff troubleshooting. If you take a picture of your SCOBY or you explain what a flavor was, you'll get um, dozens of opinions within, you know, half an hour about what might be up. So it's just great to have that kind of uh, enthusiastic community online. And, uh, yeah, I loved, I loved Sandra Katz's book that I mentioned and also uh, his next book, which was called The Art of Fermentation gives me a little bit more background about fermented beverages as well.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I know I found resources similar to that, including Sandor Katz's book, really useful, as well as those online forums mm-hmm. that you've talked about. Um, so I just want to thank you not only for the book with you've written, which I learned tons from, but also for helping to promote knowledge and understanding about these types of things, which, like you said, have so many potential health benefits. And, you know, it's gotten to the point where the small community where I live here in Rural Guatemala actually has quite a community of fermenters. In fact, our next door neighbors are building a commercial kitchen because they've had so much success with their fermented food business and beverages, such as junk tea, oh, really? um, yeah. kombucha, and, and other things, myriad other things like that. It's really gotten to catch on. So, again, thank you for the work that you do. I really hope that we can stay in touch. I'd love to do a follow up sometime and even dive deeper. So, um, that would yeah, be we fabulous. should definitely yeah, stay in touch. Thanks for having me on, Oliver. Hey, it's been my pleasure. All right, we'll talk again soon.
1: Okay, take care. Have fun brewing. Bye. Okay, take care. Bye.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info@abundantedge.com, or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.